three years through third grade. If you want to send them up here, Miss Jennifer is ready to receive them, and they're going to go downstairs and have a marvelous time learning about the Lord. If you're standing here with me, man, it's good to see you this morning again. My mic was not on earlier. I don't think for most of what I was trying to do is in the introduction, but it's good to see you today if you're our guest. Uh, we are super excited that you would choose to worship with us, whether it's here in person or online. So welcome to all of our people who are joining us on Facebook or who will watch this in the days ahead. But again, welcome to the Johnson family. Thank you guys for traveling halfway across the country to, to be in Virginia. I don't know if you've ever been to Virginia before, but welcome to Virginia. This is a this is the birth of America right here. 1607, it all happened here in Virginia, and it's a cool thing to be a part of that. Take your Bible, if you will, and turn with me to Matthew chapter 13, and then to put another finger in John chapter 3. We're going to be in those two passages this morning. Spend the bulk of our time in John 3, but I want to lay the groundwork there in Matthew 13 as we talk about a converted people. I was sitting there thinking as we were singing that last song, just uh, just relishing in the grace of God and what it means to be a child of God and how we do not deserve the salvation that we have, this grace that we have been given that's allowed us to be in relationship with the Lord. What a great thing that is. And so thinking along those lines and how it fits and dovetails so well with where we're at and what we're looking at this morning. You know, as a church, we believe and the fact that the Bible teaches, not so much that we believe it, but we believe it because the Bible teaches that the message of Jesus' death, that of his burial and his resurrection, alone redeems and transforms sinners. Amen? I mean, that's what we've been singing about today, is that the, the goodness of God has come to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And so we've been walking through this series over the last few Sundays talking about the church. What is the church? What is it to be about? Who is it comprised of? What are we to be doing? How do we uh, organize and, and make much of the name of Jesus? What does it mean to be the church? And so far we've learned that the church is a preaching people. We're, we're people that, that takes the word of God and we preach it, we teach it, because it alone is the power of God unto salvation. And so when we look at the Bible, we see there that it is the text that we preach. We preach no other text. We teach no other text. And then as we look into the Bible, we see that it has as its central subject that, it, that of being God himself, that he is the subject of what the Word of God is seeking to transmit, to seek, to teach. And so it forms us as a theological people. And then as we continue that vein of thought, we see that the grand story, the meta-narrative of the Bible, uh, the subject being God, is redemption and how he makes us his people and redeems us to himself. Gospel is what transforms us. It's through the gospel that believers experience a changed life. And so as we continue now to, to kind of build on that, we want to talk about this morning what it means to, for us to be a converted people. And the Bible has much to say about the gospel and has much to say about the conversion that it brings in a believer's life. In fact, as we saw last Sunday, the gospel is not only a message that we preach, it is a message that we're to receive, right? We, we preach it so that people receive it. We listen and we receive it into our lives. It's what changes us. The change it desires and the change that it can bring into a person's life must find fertile ground. If it's to do what it's supposed to do and do what it desires to do, it must find fertile ground in the hearts and the minds of those who hear the Word of God, who hear the gospel. 
Jesus shared a parable that illustrates exactly what I am trying to to convey this morning. He shared a parable there in Matthew 13 to talk about the kind of soil that the gospel needs to bring about this change. Look with me, Matthew chapter 13. Let's begin reading in verse 3. It says here, And he, that's Jesus, told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path. The birds birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Look over in verse 18. Jesus is going to give us a, a, a description of what this parable is teaching. He's going to uh, bring some context for us. He says, Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself but endures for a while. And when tribulation and persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. Jesus here lays out for us four types of soils that the seed is going to fall upon. And he explains here the productivity of each of these types of soil. We see here this path or the packed soil produces no fruit whatsoever. The seed falls there, and as he explains, the birds come and they snatch the seed away before it ever has time to go down into the soil and to germinate. So it produces no fruit. The second soil is the rocky soil, and it produces a temporary soil. It's there, it springs up real quick, but it never produces lasting fruit. The third soil would be what we'd call the crowded soil. It's a divided fruit. It, it, it grows, it, it looks like it's going to do something, but because of all the other plants, all the other thorns, all the other weeds, it's divided in its affection, and it produces no fruit. And then the fourth soil is good soil. And the productivity that this soil gives is eternal fruit. It lasts. It's fruitful, some 100, some a 60, and some 30. You know, last week I gave you an illustration. I tried to use chemistry. I tried to prove to you that I've been edumacated, right? And so we walked through a a chemistry lesson on how you take two hydrogen atoms and and they form this, I guess, this element called hydrogen. And if you add oxygen to it, it becomes an entirely different molecule, a different substance. One is highly flammable, though you can't smell, hear, smell or taste or, or see it. And yet you add oxygen to it. And the flammable aspect of hydrogen now is actually something that extinguishes flames. So I'm going to prove again that I've went to school a day or two in my life and use the illustration of botany. You know, Jesus here is using this illustration of botany in this parable. When a seed is sown, think about what a seed is what a seed is and what happens. When you sow a seed, it goes down into the soil. It literally dies in order to transform into something 
new. And so the seeds here sown on the packed soil never had an opportunity, is what Jesus is telling, never had an opportunity to germinate and to transform into a plant and to produce fruit because it's snatched away by the birds, ultimately by the enemy. On the other hand, the seeds that are sown on the rocky as well as the crowded soils, they do germinate. And they begin to look like fruit-bearing plants. They begin to look like they're going to produce fruit. They begin to look like they're something that is profitable and productive. There's temporary evidence of productivity. But the lack of depth and the divided attention or the divided soil there, the overcrowding causes them to wilt and to die. In contrast, the seeds that are sown in the good soil, what do they do? They germinate, they grow, and they produce a crop. They reproduce themselves as a plant. It seems that Jesus is making a big deal out of fruitfulness in this parable. In fact, if you go on and look at the other aspects of this chapter, we see that Jesus is making an argument about fruitfulness. Fruitfulness, then, is the point of this particular parable. The rocky and the crowded soils proved to be unfruitful. Those seeds looked like a a plant that would reproduce. They looked like something that would give a crop. They looked like something that would be fruitful to those who had planted it, but instead they proved to be unfruitful. They were not fruit-bearing plants. They were nothing more than weeds that looked like the real thing. Jesus, interestingly, it's actually more than interestingly that he does this, it's uh, sovereign and intentional. But on the heels of this parable, Matthew gives us another parable. It's the parable of what we would call the wheats and the tares. And so what Jesus is making a point here is that you can look like the real thing, but if you don't produce the real thing, you're not the real thing. Fruitfulness is crucial to bringing proof to one's walk and relationship with the Lord. And so Jesus shared in verses 24 through 30 this parable of the wheat and the tares. These tares, most likely that are described here, are a plant called darnel. It's a weed-like, wheat-looking type of plant. It looks like wheat, but it produces no grain, no head. Therefore, it is fruitless and nothing more than a weed. Now, this botanical picture here is applied to what we see in John chapter 3. You know the story here that's happening in John chapter 3. Jesus is beginning his ministry, and, and he's beginning to preach and, and perform miracles. People are beginning to, to, to look to him, and the Pharisees are taking note. And so Nicodemus, this ruler of the Jews, this Pharisee, a, a member of the Sanhedrin, he's one of the 70 who lead the people of God, a, a righteous man, a, a holy man, a man who knows the law and seeks to live by the law. And he comes to Jesus cautiously so, in order for Jesus to explain who he is. He wants to understand who Jesus is. Now, as we look here, the Bible tells us that he comes under the cloak of night. This could symbolize his hesitancy to believe on Jesus as Messiah. It could also be the fact that he's one of the members of the Sanhedrin. He just doesn't want people to know that he's coming to meet Jesus. It's a little controversial. Regardless, this religious leader comes to Jesus in order to learn more about his message. So Nicodemus was curious. Nicodemus was, on some level, a God-seeker. In this conversation, Jesus shares with Nicodemus how a person is converted and brought into new life in Jesus. And that's what we want to look at this morning. How do we become a converted follower of of Jesus. Look with me in John chapter 3. Let's begin to read the first five verses. Then I'm going to come back 
and unpack these and the following verses just a little bit. Verse 1, John says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, the ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one else can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So Nicodemus comes to Jesus, asks, really, he starts off with a statement. We know that you must come from God. We've seen what you do. We've heard you teach. There's no other way to explain what's happening in your life and with your ministry other than the fact that God is with you. You've been sent. You have come from God. Jesus responds with that, not as, well, thank you so much for noticing. I appreciate the compliment. He doesn't do that. He immediately moves into what the gospel is all about. And so Nicodemus' religious inquiry here is answered by a directive from the Lord that you must be born again. To be in the kingdom of God, to be a child of God, to have your name written in the Lamb's book of life, you must be born again. That's the key to the kingdom of God. So the Lord was not, and he is not, interested in making people more religious. Think about what could have happened here, what could have taken place in this conversation. Jesus could have played into this religious inquiry, but he does not do that. Jesus is never in the business of making us more religious. Instead, he's only interested in making people new. Jesus wants to make you new. Robert Cunningham has an interesting thought in regards to this. He says, it is not culture, but conversion that we need first. Not education, but transformation. Not new knowledge, but a new nature. We must become new creations by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit before we are ready to live Christ's life and bear His image. You see, when we talk about what does it mean to be the church, we are a converted people. We don't just come and be a part of a church, learn the culture, learn the language, learn how to go through the motions, what the rituals are, and then all of a sudden you kind of lean into what it means to be a follower of Jesus. No, you hear the gospel and it transforms your life. Then you're a part of the church. That's what Jesus is making the case for. So through the gospel, the church is a converted people. It's through the gospel that we experience change in our lives. And so I want us to talk about what Jesus has to say about conversion here. And there are three things. Three things about conversion. First of all, conversion involves you accepting Christ's atoning work. The only way for you to experience the conversion in your life, the change in your life, the transformation in your life that you need and that God desires for you is for you to first accept what Jesus has done for you in the work on the cross, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. We have to start there. That's where we begin. Look what Jesus says on down in John chapter 3. Surely you know verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. 
Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. We see here this atoning work of Jesus being the key for our entrance. According to Gerald Bocher, the commentator, one of the commentators that I was reading this week, we discover here that this is one of the primary theological statements in all of the New Testament. One of the, the greatest summaries of what it means to come into relationship with Jesus and how that takes place. Listen to what he has to say in regards to these three verses that we just looked at. He says, verse 16, serves as a statement of fact involving the agency, that is the Son, God uses to bring salvation to the world. Verse 17 expands on God's intention and clearly identifies God's purpose in sending the Son. Verse 18 provides a pointed reality statement concerning the present nature of judgment, a reality no reader should fail to understand. What is Bocher saying here? He's telling us that the Father sent the Son. That's the agency in order that the world might be saved through him, that's the purpose. See, the purpose of Jesus' coming was that he would be the one who provides salvation for humanity. And the one who believes on him is the one who's not condemned. But the one who does not believe on him is condemned already. There's the judgment aspect. And we've talked about last week when we shared the gospel, we must help people understand that they're lost and in need of a Savior before they can ever be saved. They need to understand they're under the judgment of their sin before they understand the necessity for one who would pay the penalty for that, who would bear the penalty and the wrath of God. Y'all with me today? All right, just wondering. It's Thanksgiving week. You guys are already thinking about turkey and, and dressing, so I just want to make sure you're awake this morning. It's good to see you. Welcome back. Conversion here involves you accepting by faith who Jesus is, but it's more than that. You accepting what Jesus has accomplished for you. Here's what we want to do as humans. We want to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We want to do it, right? But you could never pay the penalty for your sin. You could never pay the debt that you owe. It's a price too high. It's something that you could even come close to because how can something sinful ever atone for the sin that they have? Only someone who is sinless and righteous, and who could completely fulfill the obligations of God's law. Conversion involves us accepting who Jesus is, what he's done through his death, burial, and resurrection. So going back to the picture of a germinating seed, going back to Matthew 13, faith is seen in the roots that grow downward into the good soil, and they ground the believer in Christ through faith. That seed falls on good soil. You begin to understand, I am a sinner. I begin to understand, I need a Savior. You begin to understand, the Savior is Jesus. The answer is Jesus. And the seed begins to produce roots that grow down in faith into this soil. Faith is the key. Paul said in Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you've been saved through faith. See, if you've never fully accepted the atoning work of Christ, then you've never been converted. If you've never by faith put your trust in Jesus, you've never been converted. This belief is a full acceptance of his finished work. It's not Jesus and the cross plus my good works. Jesus plus the cross and, and my religious pedigree. Jesus and the cross plus anything that I might try to do or, or my religious abilities. Whatever you add to the equation, 
disqualifies it from being faith. It's not a mental assent. It's not an emotional decision. Think about that. Going back to that parable in Matthew 13, you've got some who, who in this, the seed has, it's rocky, there's no depth of the soil, but it immediately springs up. You know what this looks like. We all have weeds in our yards. It's amazing how a weed can grow in the smallest space. Like I've got a, a paved driveway. We just paved it a couple years ago, and this summer I began to notice that in some of these little places where just a little bit of dirt would get in there, you would have a dandelion pop out. I mean, I'm thinking, how in the world could you ever grow? We know it's never going to last because it can't get any depth of the soil, but it still springs up. That's what we may do when we come and we sit in church, we hear the gospel, and we don't fully trust it, we don't fully lean into it, but because it's an emotional thing, our spirit is stirred, we react to it, but it's not genuine faith. And how do you know that? When you fall away, it gives evidence that it's not genuine faith. The same would be true of those the seed that falls in the, 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 the crowded soil. There, there's a lot of things in this world. And so you, if you're the type of person that heard the gospel and says, I think that sounds good. I think that sounds like something I need in my life. And so I'm going to take it and add it to the shelf of the other things of my life. My plans, my hopes, my recreation, my, my desires, other religious beliefs, whatever is on your shelf, when you add Jesus and the gospel to that shelf, that is not faith. That's you with crowded soil taking Jesus and the gospel and trying to stick it in your life. It's not going to work. We must fully accept Christ's atoning work for us. Second thing we see here, conversion involves you repenting of sin. Continuing on here in John 3 verse 19, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Throughout this gospel, John describes the close connection between doing and being, right? James would do the same thing. There's a difference between doing and believing. The things need to be connected but you can't really, you can do and not actually be. Here Jesus points out that the nature of a person is always evidenced through their good or evil works. As he explained here, people rejected the light because their works were evil, right? And so you see the evidence or the fruit of their life. Throughout Scripture we see that the condition of mankind is evil. That's why we're in need of salvation. Paul would say it this way in Romans 3. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short, right? We see in Romans 10 also that we're enemies and haters of God. So throughout Scripture we see this picture of human depravity. But as the gospel begin to take, takes root, begins to take root in the life of a sinner, he or she, by faith, will begin to accept the work of Jesus on the cross. We'll begin to accept the work of Jesus there in the tomb and the resurrection. The sinner agrees with the gospel that says, you are a sinner. Sinner, you're under condemnation. Your payment for your sin is death. But you can be forgiven. You can be remade through Jesus. So as the gospel speaks that into your life, you begin to own that. You begin to accept that. You begin to believe that for yourself. Simultaneously with this faith, believing what's being told you through the gospel, there has to be repentance of sin, a turning away from sin. You see, it's one thing to say, yes, I am a sinner. It's another thing to say, I'm no longer going to walk in that sin. 
confession and repentance. Conversion, what, we, what happens is we allow the Holy Spirit to shed His light on our sin. And then rather than hiding in the darkness and hiding from the light, we bring it out into the light. We confess the sin and we turn from it as we turn to Jesus. Mark Dever has a great comment in regards to this. He says, conversion includes both the change of the heart toward God, that is repentance, and the belief and trust in Christ and His Word, that is faith. They are held in tandem. He says, we seek to be a converted people and understand how we are converted people. We believe God. We believe the gospel. We believe in Jesus and what he's done for us. We accept that atoning work in one hand, while on the other hand, we are turning from our sin and turning to Jesus. Faith and repentance. But there's a third thing involved. Conversion involves God transforming your life. I said earlier that in Matthew 13, fruitfulness is the theme in the parables there. Multiple parables and description of these parables Jesus is offering all for the sake of helping you understand that fruitfulness is what is needed and desired. Seed sown there in the rocky and crowded soils, what did it do? It withered and was choked out. Those two types of seeds, or better yet, those two types of soils that the seeds fell upon never produced fruit, meaning they were lifeless. See, proof of salvation, proof of conversion is evidenced by fruit being produced. Look back here in John 3. Again, verse 20. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. You see there evidence of the person's life. Evidence of the person's walk with the Lord or lack thereof. Verse 21, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Two different pictures of the same idea. One saying, I'm not going to bring my deeds to the light because I would rather live in darkness, symbolizing evil and separation from God. The other says, I've heard the gospel. I'm bringing all the darkness into the light because there it can be exposed and there it can be dealt with. What we see here is that what one does reflects who one is. When we continue to hold on to our sin, refusing to confess it, refusing to repent from it, refusing to to divorce our lives from sin, then it bears evidence that we were never changed and converted to begin with. We might be religious. We might have our names on the church roll. We might have been baptized. We might have walked the aisle. We can say all of these things. I took the preacher by the hand. I was baptized. I'm a, I'm a member of such and such church. I, I can quote verses of scripture. I've served uh, on committees. I was a small group leader. I mean, we can litany, lay the litany of things out there that we have accomplished and done, but that will never make you a converted person, Right? What makes us a converted person? By faith, I put my trust in Jesus. By faith, I turn from my sin and myself to Jesus. And I allow God to transform my life. That bears the evidence that what we are professing is actually a genuine conversion. Proof of conversion is always evidence in a changed life. Bob Jones Jr. says it this way. A faith that has not changed your life has not saved your soul. Another way we could say it, no change, no Christ, right? 
No change, no Christ. If you've never had Jesus genuinely transform your life, you've never genuinely engaged the Lord. You've never known the Lord. He's never done anything in you. Now, am I saying here that when you come into relationship with Jesus, that instantaneously you are absolutely 100% practically righteous, that you never sin? Am I saying that? Does the Word of God say that? No, it doesn't, right? Paul and the other guys in the New Testament, let's not even talk about the Old Testament. They're writing letters to churches rebuking sin and correcting their behavior, right? Saying this is not godly. We're going to read in 2 Corinthians 3 in just a minute. I mean, Paul writes to the church at Corinth three different times. We have two letters in the Bible. And all of these letters he's writing to rebuke. The first letter is the most, is the most strong language you will see in all of the other letters. Rebuking them for their sin. But they're genuine followers of Jesus. Doesn't mean we're sinless, but it means we've been changed and we're being changed, transformed into the image of Christ. I mentioned 2 Corinthians 3. If you've got uh, fast fingers, flip over to chapter 3 with me. Fast fingers on a tablet, fast fingers in your Bible. Sounds like most of you have tablets this morning. I don't hear any pages turning. I miss the days of hearing Bible pages turn. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Before I read this, Paul here is making the point that I've been trying to make. Let me just set the context. What's going on here? Paul is talking about religious Jews, Jews that have put their trust in the law. But nevertheless, they're all, whatever their good intentions, whatever their religion was, and, and really their, uh, their commitment to that religion, it did not produce transformation in their lives. So those who believe the gospel and who had faith into Jesus, they are the ones who are transformed. Look what he says in verse 16. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed, right? Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Paul would go on in chapter 4 if we had time to read it, and we would see that he further explains the transforming that needs to take place and, and is taking place in their lives, how he's sanctifying and growing them and developing them and making them what they once into something new in regards to what they once were. So we then, as the church, we are a converted people, right? The gospel has transformed our lives. If you know Jesus today, you are not who you were once, uh, once upon a time. You have been changed. We've heard. We've received the gospel. We've accepted his work upon the cross, turned from our sin. And as a result, we are in a changed life. Aren't you glad you're not who you once were? Here's what we never want to forget, what we once were. Sometimes we can become a, we, we, we were a follower of Jesus for so long and we lived in this insulated church bubble for so long that we forget maybe some of those thoughts and actions and attitudes and just approach to life that we once had, but it's not that way anymore. We should never forget what God has saved us from and what he's saved us to. Thankfully, because of Christ, we're not what we once were. The word that Paul uses here in 2 Corinthians 3, 18, the words translated transformed is the Greek word metamorpho, metamorpho. It's the word that we get our English metamorphosis, right? Again, we're going to play some scientists here on Sunday morning. 
Think about what metamorphosis is. Go back to your days in school. It, it literally just means transformation. It means change. So the seed sown on the ground goes through this version of metamorphosis as it transforms from a seed to a plant. We also see this take place in, in, in the common butterfly. That larva, that, that caterpillar crawls up, makes a cocoon of some sort of uh, material, silk-like material, crawls inside, spends a number of days there, and somehow eats its way out and becomes a butterfly. Something that was crawling on a leaf, eating, uh, eating leaves itself, now is flying around and pollinating the very plants it used to live on metamorphosis, a transformation is taking place. The gospel that's received by a sinner transforms the person into a saint, transforms the sinner into a saint. So the individual is converted to Christ, which is evidence in how he or she lives. Question this morning, have you personally come to the point where you by faith have accepted Jesus' work on the cross Turn from your sins and been saved, transformed by Jesus. Again, the evidence of genuine faith, what is it? It's transformation. Can you see a pattern in your life? Can you see that Jesus is doing a work, great work in you? Remember what Jones says, a faith that, is, that has not changed your life has not saved your soul. So today, is it, is it true of you that the greatest need in your life is not more religion, more church, more Bible, more any of that? The greatest need in your life is to respond to all of that and allow Jesus to transform your life, to be saved today. Maybe you're online this morning, and the greatest need in your life is for Jesus to save you today. For most of us, that's not the case. We're followers of Jesus. That moment is in the past. We're walking in this process of sanctification. We can go back and we can see how Jesus has changed us. We can see and track how he's changed us over the months or years of our lives since we came to know Jesus. But perhaps today your heart is not as hot for the Lord as it once was. The best description of your life would, would, would not be so much that I need Jesus, I need to be saved. It's that I am saved, but I'm walking at a guilty distance. My heart's not really hot for the Lord. I'd, I'd rather hang on to some besetting sins in my life than to really forsake them and to walk true with the Lord. And so for you, it's not that you need to be saved today. For you, it's, man, I, I need the Lord to renew me and to revive me. I think we live in one of those paradigms for the most part of our lives. It's like we don't spend a whole lot of time on the mountaintop. I don't know about you, but as soon as I get on the mountaintop and I feel like things are great, it's like I'm already on the descent and, and the Lord is taking me through a new process to help sanctify me a little bit more. And I realize, hey, I'm, I'm not walking with the Lord maybe as, I, as the Lord would want me to, and it needs to be a time of renewal. Where are you at this morning? Whatever your condition, the Bible gives us good news. Good news, it says God loves you, God cares for you, God has a plan for your life. God, God uh, just in creation itself created you for him, to be in relationship with him. He wants that. I think sometimes in our life, many times in our life, we can be so um, overwhelmed by our choices, overwhelmed by our decisions, overwhelmed by the things that we do that are against God that we think there's no way he could ever love us. But you could never do enough sin to negate his love, right? Grace so marvelous is what we've been singing about. 
where sin abounds, the Bible says, grace abounds that much more. You can never sin your way out of the love of God. So good news is that God loves you, cares for you, wants to be in relationship with you. Bad news is, is that we're all messed up people. We're all broken people. There's a song on the radio right now that, that says something like this, that we're broken. That I'm, I'm going to paraphrase here because I'm terrible at lyrics of songs, right? Uh, probably some of you are like me. But this song says that it's about truth. You, you want him to speak the truth. But over and over in the chorus, it just basically says that we, we just play this game. That, right? Rather than coming and saying the truth, here's where I'm at. I'm broken. I'm messed up. There's something wrong with me. I'm dealing with sin. I'm walking into guilty distance. What we tend to do is put on a good face, put on a good smile, and act like everything's okay. When God knows and you know, and most of the people who are in your circles know it's not okay. You're broken. The bad news is we're sinners. The bad news in our sin, we're separated from God. The best news is, is because God does love you, he paid the penalty for your sin. If you will faith into that and do everything we've talked about this morning, you can be forgiven, made whole, restored, whatever adjective you want to put in there. God will change your life. Amen? Where are you at this morning? Need to know Jesus as Lord and Savior? Need to come to him afresh and anew as a father of Jesus? Whatever it is, let's follow the Lord today as a converted people. Father, this morning we are grateful for the gospel. The gospel that we can sing about, the gospel that we know transforms. Lord, we're grateful that the Christian life is not left to us living up to a list of obligations, checking off a, a, a sheet of boxes that say, if you don't do this, then you're out. God, we know, we realize that there's no way we could ever live up to that. I, that's the point of the law itself, to show us our inadequacies. And at the same time, to point to Christ's sufficiency. And so, God, I pray for us here in this room today, those watching us live online, those who would watch us later, that in the next few minutes that your Holy Spirit would just help us to wrestle with this question of what do I need to do with what I've heard? Has there ever been a time in my life when I knowingly and willingly turned from my sin and turned to Jesus? And can that be evidenced through fruit? Was my, has my life been sown on good soil? And did the gospel find good soil in my, in my heart? And did it germinate and grow and produce fruit? Or has my life been nothing more than packed soil, rocky soil, crowded soil? lead us this morning. For some, today needs to be the day of their salvation. For others, perhaps, today needs to be a day of renewal and refreshment, revival in their life. For others, Lord, it's a day to just praise the Lord. Because right now, things are really good in your walk with, with their walk with the Lord. There's no sin that they know of. There's no no tendency to, to, to walk at a guilty distance. They're, they're walking in step with you. and God, They just need to rejoice with that. 
lean into you even that much more. Thank you for your goodness and grace. Whatever, whatever the situation, whatever the need today, help us, Lord, by faith to trust you and to do what you've called us to do, to respond as you're directing us. We love you. We thank you for grace. We thank you for Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Would you stand around the room and let's respond. I'm going to stand right here. If you would like to come forward, maybe you need somebody to pray with you, you do that. If you want to come just kneel at the altar, you do that as well. If you need to talk to someone about what it means to follow Jesus, you come and we'll get you with one of our encouragers. It's a time to respond. Maybe you just want to spin around in your seat. You don't need to come forward. Just kneel before the Lord and just thank Him. I don't know. We're all going through a lot of stuff. Where is the Holy Spirit speaking to you at this morning? Let's respond.